0: every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, We are entering our fourth week of our series, Bringing Peace to the Culture War. So in the series, what we're ultimately talking about is how the kingdom of God spreads on earth. The way that the Bible talks about the kingdom of God spreading is not in terms of a, a top-down uh, legislative or authoritative way, but it, also, it, it uses organic metaphors to talk about the way the kingdom of heaven spreads. It's like a small mustard seed that is planted, and it's this tiny thing, and then it grows organically into the largest uh, plant in the garden. And what they're getting at... when, When we're talking about the Bible, excuse me, the kingdom of God spreading in these organic terms, is that it doesn't spread from the top down. The kingdom of God spreads by our hearts changing and us interacting with the people in our lives and the systems that we interact with, our jobs, and by incorporating the principles of the kingdom that have taken root in us by our hearts changing, then other people begin to change as well. And the kingdom of God begins to spread, it becomes to be on earth as it is in heaven, like what we pray for. So for the kingdom of God to spread now, we often, we typically use this metaphor of a culture war, uh, which is the idea that there's one culture, like a conservative Christian culture, that, that then finally will crush the other culture into submission, or at least legislate them into submission. Um, and uh, it, that's really not the picture that we have. The picture that we have is much more personal than that. The picture that we have requires your entire life. Uh, you can't say that, uh, which, means, which means that the way that we gauge whether the culture is changing may look a lot different from what we see happening politically. There could be a lot of negative things happening legislatively. There could be a lot of negative things happening politically. And the kingdom of God may still be advancing even more Uh, more than ever. Because it takes place in these organic, everyday places in your life. It takes place in the conversations that you're having with your coworkers, and how you're loving your spouse, and how you're raising your children. Uh, That's where the kingdom of heaven spreads. And that means we need to be prepared. We need to be equipped to enter into those conversations and anticipate the Holy Spirit engaging us to bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. So, In order to do that, uh, we view culture differently. The, The things that we would say are typically negative that are happening in our culture, those now become opportunities for us to bring truth into those areas. The areas of brokenness that we see in our workplaces that used to be the reasons that we wanted to leave our jobs, now we see that's the reason that we need to stay. That's the reason we need to remain here because there's this area of brokenness that now I'm called to move into and redeem. By embracing my biblical worldview, by taking the wisdom that the Bible has given me, the changed heart and the courage that I now have uh, in Christ, I'm able to move into these areas of brokenness with endurance and patience and stay there to redeem them. So we're looking at, that changes the way that we look at and engage with culture. It means that all of these, these broken things or these typically wrong things that we would say are the way that many in our culture uh, view the world. Now we need, to see, uh, it, we need to see how can we step into that way of viewing the world to redeem it. So in order to do that, uh, this series, we're looking at a different article each week sourced from this website called eon.co, A-E-O-N C-O, and uh, we're seeing how they view these big questions in our culture and see how they bring... Uh, how our culture is typically talking about these big questions of life, and then we're seeing how does Christianity engage with that conversation that's already happening in our culture. The idea being this is a conversation that, at least in the background, is already taking place between you and your friends or you and your co-workers, and we're hoping to equip you to bring the truths of the gospel, the truths of the Bible, into that conversation. So, Last week, we talked about sexuality. This week, we are talking about authenticity. Authenticity is a, uh, um, a, an extremely high value in our culture. They say it's uh, probably our number one value. I think that that's particularly true of the generation referred to as millennials, those entitled narcissists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, we, uh, we extremely, we extremely value authenticity. Uh, Charles Taylor, who is a philosopher, yes, those still exist. That's still a job you could do. Uh, it doesn't pay well. Uh, Charles Taylor is a philosopher at McGill University's Canadian philosopher, and um, he has described our current moment as the age of authenticity. That is, it is the number one defining principle of our current time, the age of authenticity. He says, uh, authenticity is not just a value, but it is a pervasive ideal that impacts social and political thinking. So that means that authenticity is this pervasive ideal, meaning it's a benchmark or a watershed that we use to decide whether something is right or wrong. Whether something is right or wrong doesn't hinge on any particular morality other than is this action authentic? Is this person being authentic? So what is authenticity then as this value as Charles Taylor describes it? He says, authenticity is the understanding of life which emerges from the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed upon us from outside by society, the previous generation, religious or political authority. So what this means is that the standard, the ethic, the morality that you live by hinges on the things that you discover in yourself by honest introspection. You say, this is a part of me that truly reflects me. It's at the core of who I am. And based on that, not based on any sort of other outward morality that you would discover, not based on any political influence, not based on any religious influence, not based on any societal pressure, but only based on what you introspectively discover within yourself, Are you required, then, to live by? So this is the foundation of all of our hero stories. You can see it, uh, it's just about the only hero story we have left, in fact, is the person who cuts out on their own, they discover what's in themselves. every Disney movie, it turns out the magic was in you all along, you just needed to be yourself. Um, That's the story. So to quote uh, an extremely influential figure, she is the princess of the Scandinavian kingdom of Arendelle. You know the reference already? <laughs> Princess Elsa is her name. Uh, she says, it's time to see what I can do, to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. <laughs> Let it go. So uh, the it that she's referring to, the, that she's letting go, is uh, those societal pressures, those political or or religious or generational pressures that she was feeling to uh, keep the power in her suppressed. Uh, When you're a princess, the uh, generational and political powers happen to be the same thing, so it was particularly difficult for her. Um, It all works out in the end, though. Um, this This is the story that our culture is always teaching to us over and over again. That the, the true, it, it, uh, to live a truly moral, authentic, meaningful life, that's redundant now that I said authentic, but you, you must be an authentic person. You must be looking inside of yourself, not allowing anyone else to put a limit on you or tell you who you are or tell you how you ought to be living. Look inside yourself and then live according to that. That is our form of morality. The notions of be yourself or be real have solidified into just common sense. They're the, uh, this is the unquestioned ethic of our age, the age of authenticity. This is the one thing that we don't push back against at all. Be yourself, be real, we just take those for granted, as though the world has always and completely thought like that. But the reality is, cultures, even Western culture, hasn't always thought like this. this. It hasn't always been the age of authenticity. Uh, Quoting from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's article on authenticity, they write, In earlier times, which they're referring to prior to the late 18th century, a sincere person was seen as someone who honestly attempts to neither violate the expectations that follow from the position he holds in society, nor to strive to appear otherwise than he ought to. See, this earlier time, in this earlier time, prior to the 18th century, our main societal value wasn't authenticity, but sincerity. And sincer- sincerity was thought of as something that today we would, we would talk about negatively, using the term conformity. You're just being a conformist. But when they said sincerity, it meant, no, I know what society needs me to be. It needs me to be a shoemaker. And so I'm the guy in this town that makes the shoes. And I'm not not trying to dress like the guy that makes the hats. And I'm not trying to dress like the king. And I'm not trying to dress like the guys that work for me. I know who I am. I'm the shoemaker here. And I'm not trying to be anything other than that. Uh, It was a morality defined in terms of the society and what society needed. And this switch to authenticity is uh, a morality defined in terms of the individual. So where one would say, I am whatever society needs me to be, we would now say, I am who I am, no matter what. And I'm going to live according to who I am and what I find within myself, no matter what. Uh, it's a, there, there has been a switch, this hasn't been something that uh, has existed forever. But we know that there is this extremely positive value within authenticity. We know what we mean when we say we want someone to be authentic. We want to be authentic people. We want people to be authentic with us in our relationships. We all know someone who would say, you know, they just don't know themselves. They're always someone different. And because they don't know themselves, it's difficult to establish any sort of a real legitimate relationship with them. Uh, and we also know people who are just utilizing the structures of society, be it business or church or relationships, or trying to, trying to network themselves into important positions and we can see, like, this ha- the way that you're living has nothing to do with what you actually think or the ideals that you actually hold and believe in. And we call those people hypocrites. And we don't want to deal with hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to act in such a way that aligns with what we truly believe. We want to be authentic people. This is a real value. And it's something worth exploring intelligently because this is an aspect of our society that we can come alongside and say, authenticity is a good thing. We want to be authentic in the same way that you want to be authentic. But the ways that we get there, we think, are pretty different. See, authenticity is something that's extremely good and worth looking into, more than looking into, worth embodying. But when we embody it the way that just our culture embodies authenticity of merely be yourself, it often ends up with us getting actually a lack of authenticity. In fact, when I say the word authenticity now, you can probably picture a certain aesthetic of what an authentic person or an authentic place looks like. So I'll use a couple of examples. An authentic coffee shop. You can picture it. You can picture what that looks like. Um, a, a person who, we, you know, it's fair trade. And uh, it's like locally sourced and organic. And it's very authentic. They care about the coffee. Um, but the, and it probably has a name like uh, sales and oxen. So that was funny because you know that that's like what authentic is supposed to feel like now. It's names like that. I got that name off of a website called hipster.name, which you can go to, and or excuse me, hipsterbusiness.name, and uh, it random. you just click generate name and it randomly generates names. So it was sales and oxen, which would be a great coffee shop name, <laughs> circle and chair. <laughs> There's another randomly generated name, or wrench and dollar uh, was another one. So, uh, but don't you see the problem? Those are based around an authentic aesthetic. The term authentic, it doesn't, it isn't authentic anymore. It's just this other aesthetic in culture that you're meant to subscribe to. So the hero story of the person cutting out on their own trail, cutting out on their own path, is now no longer even an authentic experience. It's just typical. It's just another societal pressure. It's another way of conforming. Authenticity has become an aesthetic in our society that we just conform to. And so in our search for authenticity, we oftentimes end up with the opposite. We don't end up finding or expressing ourselves, we end up losing ourselves. So this morning we're going to look into the way that our culture approaches authenticity. We're going to look at first the paradox of authenticity, which is in trying to find ourselves and express ourselves in our culture, As authentic people, we end up losing ourselves. That's the paradox of authenticity. And next, we're going to look at authenticity redeemed. What is the biblical perspective on authenticity that allows us to freely be ourselves in the world? So, first off, the paradox of authenticity. The essay that we are looking at this week is from... uh, that website, Eon. It's in your newsletter, which is actually sitting in your pocket right now. Uh, if you have email on your phone, you have email on your phone. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're looking at the the essay is called "The Makeover Trap," and it's by a lecturer at uh, uh, Cardiff Metropolitan University. His name is Michael Lovelock, and he begins his essay by looking into this uh, Instagram hashtag called Transformation Tuesday. Are any of you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. So Transformation Tuesday, it's like Throwback Thursday. Throwback Thursday is where you uh, post an old picture of yourself and you say, like, can't believe we dressed like that. This is crazy. Um, Transformation Tuesday is where you do a split screen of yourself. And on the left side is like a bad, frumpy picture of you And on the right side is a thin, fit um, picture of you. And you hashtag it Transformation Tuesday. Look at me and what I've been able to do with myself. Um, So this is typically understood as an exercise in millennial narcissism. Um, (laughs) But uh, Michael Lovelock actually goes uh, a step beneath this. Uh, And he's saying this isn't merely narcissism because you have to continue reading, what are people saying about these transformations? What's motivating them? He says, for these young men and women, improving the physical body is far more than an exercise in vanity. It has come to stand for a host of wider values and beliefs, self-discipline and strength of mind, and most profoundly, a conduit to self-realization, to becoming the person you were always meant to be. There is an ethic of authenticity that is underpinning this seemingly just vain exercise. See, the transformation of Transformation Tuesday is about becoming my real self. This frumpy picture on the left, that's, that wasn't really me. Then once I got the discipline and the self-control and the state of mind to be able to, to engage with myself in this new way, I was able to unveil To the world, who I really am, the potential that was really in me, my true and core self. Underpinning this, there's this ethic of authenticity, and there's this idea that within ourselves, there is such a thing as a true self. There is such a thing within our personalities as my core identity, all those things that if everything else was stripped away, this would still be there, and I would still be me. This idea of there being a true self stems back uh, to the late 1800s, excuse me, the late 18th century, 1770, uh, precisely when Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote his Confessions. And in that, he points out, uh, when the space of interiority becomes a guiding authority, the individual must detect and distinguish central impulses, feelings and wishes, from ones that are less central or conflict with one's central motives. So this provides us with a system, or at least our first step in understanding how do we become authentic? What are the moves that we need to make towards authenticity? The first thing that we need to do is introspect, look inside of ourselves, but then we have to start making decisions. We have to say, this aspect of my personality, this aspect of me, is central. This, this, as opposed to this other thing, is central. It is core. This really is who I am. And all of these other peripheral things, those aren't really who I am. Self-discovery is therefore an isolated process, which only requires introspection. And then it causes us to make these delineations within ourselves. This is really me. This isn't really me. And then the ideal is that we live according to those things that we have decided are really us. See, this raises a bit of an issue. When I said that sincerity uh, jumps from the ethic of sincerity, we jumped to the ethic of authenticity, I actually skipped this step which we're going to flesh out here, we, in between that was the ethic of autonomy. So the issue that we'll look into now is how our authenticity actually subverts our autonomy. So we're going to look into how that can be the case. What happens is when authenticity becomes the central ethical force, then when we look inside, and we discover some aspect of ourselves that is truly the core of who we are, and we decide this is truly the core of who I am, then we must live according to that essence of who we are. So that means that even if we see that another option is more reasonably right or more reasonably true, it doesn't matter. Because if we've seen that this is the core of who I am, then we actually subvert our reason, subvert our autonomy, which is the ability to step back and say, what is the right thing to do? Let me reason through this morally and decide what is the correct option, what is the correct alternative, how should I be living in this type of situation? Now we say, if there is a core of me that subverts whatever I think to be reasonably correct or reasonably true, I'm compelled to go with what is the core of me. Otherwise, I'm inauthentic. I'm losing myself. So that means you can reasonably conclude that uh, it, it is the right thing to do to maintain my commitment in this marriage. But if I look within myself and I see that there is a reality of a sexually liberated person that's in myself, and that for that person to go denied, for that person to go unexpressed is just me being inauthentic And so I have to live according to that desire, even though it may seem reasonably wrong. Uh, This is a theme in a a lot of our movies, that sort of sexual liberation story. Uh, Do you remember the 1999 best picture, American Beauty? Yes. Yes. That's what that movie was about. Uh, It's about a man who goes through that, it's about a man discovering his authenticity, who even though it may seem reasonable to stay committed to his spouse, he realizes I'm the sexually liberated person. And for that to go unexpressed would be me being inauthentic. It's the lines that people use for breakups. Uh, It's, uh, it wouldn't be fair to you or to me for me to not be my full self, for me to not be my true self, and so we break the promises that we have made, although that may seem reasonable to keep them, in the name of living authentically, in the name of living as our own selves. Um, It—if uh, we look inside ourselves and we see that I—I I need to be free from any constraints. And that I I will be unable to be myself when I am tied down by any sort of relationship. That means uh, if you hear that type of language from your boyfriend or girlfriend, prepare to be dating a long time. Uh, Because that commitment or that next step can't be made. Because if it were made, it would be in violation of authenticity. It would be in violation of me living as my complete and full self. See, this ethic of authenticity, it, it uh, gets in the way of even developing what we would call an authentic relationship. Or consider a freedom, uh, consider someone who, who says, you know, the core of me is I'm a hard worker and I'm a business person. And that means that when I will, that means that I would set aside the other obligations in my life. That means that I will, con- I will continually lie about what time I'll be home to my spouse. Um, I say that one because I do that all the time. Sorry, Megan. Um, uh, and uh, it, because th- what I've identified myself to be, the core of who I am, I have to live in accord with that. Uh, our autonomy then actually becomes a limit. Excuse me, our authenticity then actually becomes a limit on our freedom. See, when we make decisions about what the most essential qualities of ourselves are, we're also simultaneously deciding how will we then live. How will we act out these qualities? Because in order to be authentic, there needs to be the internal disposition of who I think I truly am, and then there needs to be the external representation of that. That's what authenticity means, the internal and the external lining up. So when we're deciding what is the core of ourselves, uh, then we're also deciding how will we live. What If we separate ourselves from action or meaning, our lives then become either hollow or despairing. So, in an effort to maintain our authenticity, we look inside, see what our core self is, and then we relate that to an external action, to the way that we live. So, let's look at uh, what turn to a quote from Kierkegaard, um, who had a lot to say about authenticity. He frames it in terms of becoming what one is, which I think is a great way of saying it. He says, becoming what one is and evading despair and hollowness is not a matter of solitary introspection, but rather a matter of passionate commitment to a relation, to something outside oneself that bestows one's life with meaning. So if you consider our example, any of our examples above, their deciding of what made the core of themselves be it their work ethic, be it their sexuality, be it their freedom. Those things being at the core of themselves required a passionate commitment to something outside of themselves, to their freedom, to their sexuality, to their work. And that, that passionate commitment to something outside of themselves, that is what provides their life with meaning. That's what keeps them from becoming hollow or despairing. We find our meaning... In the things that we say, in the things that we passionately commit to outside of ourselves. In Christian language, the way that he's describing this term, this phrase, passionate commitment to a relation to something outside oneself that bestows one's life with meaning, that's, that's a, what we would say is what, what you're putting your faith in. What is your faith in? What is that thing that you're committing to passionately outside of yourself that you think will give your life meaning? What is functionally doing that? That is gets to the core of what you think it means for you to be authentic. And it gets to the core of what your faith is actually in. What do you put your faith in? So in distinguishing between what is essentially us and what is not, We are always selecting what it is we will be passionately committed to on the outside. And distinguishing what makes the core of ourselves, ultimately what we're asking is, what am I going to put my faith in that will give my life meaning and allow me to live freely as myself? Those are the questions that we're actually asking when we're deciding, what will it mean for me to live authentically? So your internal delineations of what is and isn't really you require an external expression to be authentic. So then what happens is, is it's this odd trick of where all of a sudden I need to decide what is really me, but then I need to find something on the outside that matches that so that I can prove my own Authenticity, so that then I can actually manifest it. So the so then what happens is it ends up being retroactively just societal pressure deciding what is you and what isn't really you. You're deciding what am I going to give, what in society am I going to give the godlike power of ascribing meaning to my own life? That's the question that we're asking in terms of our authenticity. And society hasn't always agreed on what those things are. A great example that I uh, listened to Tim Keller give, I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, <laughs> we, uh, it is if this were a 1,000 years ago, and you were an Anglo-Saxon warrior, and you were walking around <laughs> Anglo-Saxon land, <laughs> uh, what uh, And you found, you looked in yourself and you said, the core of my identity is a, that I'm an aggressive person. I'm a warrior. I battle. And so that society, walks, that society says, yes, that is the core of who you are. That is who you really are. But currently in our society, if you were to walk around as this aggressive person who are constantly taking out your aggression on other people, our society would say, that's not really who you are that just comes from an insecurity and from a not really knowing yourself. You see, so it, 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 also, it ultimately becomes these societal norms that are dictating what is and isn't really you. Our society currently says that no matter what you're feeling sexually, no matter what your sexual desires are, that is really you. That is the core of who you are. But society hasn't always thought that. That hasn't always been the case of where we find the seat or the core of who we really are. So what we're deciding is what in society are we going to give the godlike power of ascribing meaning to our lives? Another way to say that is what are we going to make ourselves a slave to? What am I going to make myself totally committed to in the hopes that it will give me the ability to live freely to live as myself, finally, freely, in the world. It's a, uh, it's a bit of a trap. Another more lighthearted example is uh, hipsters all want to dress different. And so they all dress the same. Uh, because we looked out into society and we saw what does it look like to dress different? What does it look like to be myself in my dress? And uh, it looks like these people who dress different. (laughs) So our search and quest for authenticity, often paradoxically, we lose ourselves. It becomes mere conformity. In this attempt to hold on so tightly to what we think is truly us, in this covetousness that we have of who I am inside, we lose ourselves. In loving our lives, we lose them. So the advice of be yourself while meant to be liberating can often be quite enslaving. So what does authenticity look like when it's redeemed? What does it look like to live truly authentically the way that we had hoped in the beginning? Well, the text that we're looking at today, uh, it answers one question right off the bat. I'll go ahead and read it. Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So in seeing how Christianity redeems authenticity, the place that we have to start is where we align with our culture, which is that this hope that our culture has, that there is a real, essential me. There is a core of who I am. There is a true identity that I have. This demeanor, this personality, these are not mere accidents. This is actually a core of who I am. The Bible says That's true. There is a core of who you are. There is this tailor-made, this bespoke, hipster word, this this true essence of who you are uh, that was tailor-made by God himself. This term, uh, you formed my inward parts, that inward parts is a reference to the kidneys. um, And that sensitive organ, if you get hit there, was thought to be the seat of our emotions, of our personality, of our demeanor. So what David is saying here when he's writing this is, when it's not just you formed my kidneys. He's saying you made my demeanor. You made my personality to fit into the world and work in the world in this very particular and precise way, such that if I'm not living out of this core of who I am, then there's this aspect of creation that won't be expressed. That there are areas of culture that I, me, particularly, are meant to be redeeming, and I've been made to redeem them. I've been made to glorify God in this area by the particular expression of who I am. That's a reality. That's a true thing. Living authentically from that is our hope in Christ. That's how we think the kingdom will really spread. It requires you living authentically, living as who you really are. So that true self that the age of authenticity seeks to be living from is a reality. It's a reality of who we are. But as we've seen in our breakdown of authenticity, it is not a question of if something outside of yourself is ultimately determining who you are and ultimately determining how you're expressing your authenticity. It is not a question of if that belongs to something outside of yourself. It is a question of what that thing outside of yourself is. So we saw a requirement of authenticity is, in order for our lives to have meaning in it, we need a passionate commitment to a relation to something outside oneself that bestows one's life with meaning. And therefore the question is, what is that thing going to be? What can that thing possibly be that doesn't result in just mere conformity, that doesn't result in me being lost or in me being enslaved to this thing that I've decided really is me? We've seen that it can't just be what culture says it is. When you look inside of you and you say, this is at the core of me and this isn't at the core of me, you're always, you're always making a culturally informed decision. When you decide your sexuality is at the core of you but your aggression isn't, How can you say that that's not just an aspect of, you're not just reflecting your culture into your life? But ultimately what we're deciding in those things is what am I making myself a slave to? What am I giving the ultimate power to give my life meaning? Did you move to Denver because your life was going to have meaning in your weekend adventures? And so you can't miss them. No matter the cost. No matter the cost to anything, no matter the cost to uh, your friendships, your relationships, your marriages, your work, you can't miss them because you moved here Because to express that part of yourself. You see, now no longer are those weekend adventures serving you. You are serving them. You work for them because they have promised you that in this you will be truly you and you will find true life. And so they require everything from you but they don't give it in return. See, there's only one thing that can be outside of ourselves that we passionately and wholeheartedly commit to that doesn't remove ourselves and that doesn't destroy ourselves, but that actually makes us truly who we are. And that's our commitment to Jesus. That's our commitment to God. I hope you sort of maybe anticipated where this was going. See, Jesus describes it like this, this tension of how we relate to him like this. In John 12, 25 to 26, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is articulating the reality that if you seek to become what you are by anything other than him, ultimately, you aren't going to be yourself. You're going to be lost. You're going to make yourself a victim to something in culture that you're then serving with your whole life in hopes that will give you a meaning that it can't. Because do you remember how uniquely you were made There's nothing expressed in our culture that can capture that. The only thing that can truly capture that type of uniqueness that you can passionately commit to is is the thing that made you itself. The thing that made you and looks inside of you to truly know you and say, this is really who you are and this part is just a Klingon. This isn't really who you are. This is just left over from the culture, some cultural ideal. This is really who you are, and this part is actually just sin. This is your. This is a manifestation of your rebellion against me. This is you. Uh, this is well. This is a quote that captures what I'm about to say better than I could say it. So this is a return to Kierkegaard, and he says, "Sin is in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Faith is that the self." in being itself, in wanting to be itself, is grounded transparently in God. You see, pure authenticity that just, try, that just introspects and looks into, the, into yourself to make the decision of who you really are just ends in slavery to whatever you, you're going to look to to give yourself meaning, to give your life meaning. But when you look to Jesus, when you look to your Creator, And you say, you tell me who I am. You're the one who designed me. I'm going to, in fact, hate these things that I have so deeply identified myself with in order to gain the life that you're promising me that I would have. When you step back, this is a simple comparison. Because the other things that you're looking to to give meaning to your life that you're living your life towards to express your own authenticity, they haven't done anything for you in return. They haven't given you that freedom that you hoped they would. They haven't allowed you to be truly and completely and freely you. They haven't given the space for that. They're just new taskmasters that you assign for yourself. So that if it was hard work, you're you're never working hard enough and you're always meeting people who are working more efficiently than you. If it's your looks, you're always meeting people that are better looking than you. If it's your outdoor adventures, you're always meeting someone who biked with their skis on their back to hike up a mountain and then ski down. That's a weekend. If it's your job, you're always meeting someone who's more successful than you, who's doing a better job than you. All of these things that, meant, that were meant to be ascribing a sense of freedom to your life are now just enslaving you more. But with Jesus, we, have this, we, we are giving this God-like power of ascribing meaning to our lives back to God. And with a clear understanding of the gospel, we're seeing that this taskmaster didn't merely require our lives of us, but actually gave his life for us that we might become who we were always meant to be. That by letting him look inside of us and parse, this is you, this isn't really you, he will force us to let go of the things that we've been clinging to for meaning in our lives. He will force you to say, you've been treating that like God, and it's making you not yourself. Treat me like God. Let me make the difficult decisions. Let me be the one that says your sexuality isn't the thing that defines you. Let me tell you what your sex life will look like. Something that personal. Your finances, these aren't the things that define you. Let me tell you what your financial life should look like. Your marriage, this isn't this ultimate thing that defines you. Let me show you how to put it in its right context. Your children. Living authentically means becoming who we were truly meant to be.